Welcome to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. This is like the SNL crisis in the 80s. We're not talking about a failure of this bank, but that banks could, you know, fail. This is clearly an example of something breaking. Insiders at Silicon Valley Bank sold more than $84 million worth of stock. This morning, we witnessed the second largest bank failure in American history. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. This is Todd Zemple, and with me, Joe Gordon. On the podcast today, we have repeat guest, friend of the farm, James Abate. James is a portfolio manager and CIO for Center Asset Management. So without any further ado, let's jump right in. Joe, why don't you take the first question? Dean and I were talking. I thought to kick it off today... Uh, I would like to ask you just where you are right now from a hedging perspective, uh, and uh, if you would share that with us, not forward-thinking comments, but how the portfolio is hedged currently and your thoughts as to the what and why, and, and then if there's any reason for reconsidering because of this little banking crisis, we, we'd like your comment on that briefly as to whether you think it's the beginning of a contagion or or just an isolated bunch of knuckleheads that didn't understand risk management or duration management. <laughs> well, with regard to the hedging, the Center American Select Equity Fund has um, maintained a full protective put option as a tail hedge on the overall portfolio. So, as we stand now, and we put it on in the beginning of the year, the fund has approximately 100% of the notional value of the underlying equities hedged with a 20% out of the money put option that um, we have essentially kept static and uh, will look to roll the expiry forward um, in, a, in an opportunistic manner. So I think where we are today is that um, the background behind that is that from a bottoms up perspective, when we're looking at the portfolio, this is a year where we view returns to be asymmetrical in the market. And what I mean by that specifically is that, you know, unlike last year, where in essence, the entire decline in the market was driven by a derating. Um, you know, in fact, just having the, the the forward PE multiple on the market go from 21 times down to 17 times, and EPS was essentially flat last year. This year, if you look at where we are in terms of consensus, both top down and bottom up, it's calling for you know relatively flat earnings, um, but it's very difficult to see how you could, um, from an appreciation potential get PE expansion if the Fed continues to maintain a tight monetary policy. And what sometimes people you know, miss, particularly when they're just looking at the simplistic Fed model, which ties PE multiples to interest rates, um, you're clearly under the potential for an environment like 2003, 2005, where you get an expansion in um, the equity risk premium or risk aversion, actually, which is the other significant component of um, valuation multiples. 
now that's the good scenario where you know you get some slight PE expansion, which maybe leads to maybe a 10% upside. The downside scenario is that we genuinely start to see what many you know top-down uh, indicators indicate, um, which is a full-blown recession, which converts into an earnings recession. And that is a scenario, if history is any guide, where uh, EPS will decline by 20 or 25%. And it's frankly unprecedented, or it would be a historical anomaly, not for the indices to actually follow that trend if an earnings recession does grip the market. So we, we think a hedging strategy works well in this environment, um, but it, it, it's definitely going to be a challenging year, I think. And you can see the frustration. And one of the biggest frustrations I've had, I think any every fund manager, is this kind of almost nonsensical kind of you know embracement of of uh you know the the of the safety of big cap tech um this year early on and we could talk further about that but to to run to the arms of nvidia uh trading at 24 times revenue or microsoft at 10 times revenue uh thinking that this is going to be akin to what happened in 2020 i think is a mistaken uh, sense of safety that a lot of investors have made this year. So it's been a challenge in terms of portfolio construction and other things to take that into consideration. So tell us about the uh, the rotation that you've done. Uh, Z was telling me it looked like uh, you've got a, a lot higher allocation to healthcare. And uh, have you rotated out of, of most of the big tech? Because you seemed like you had uh, at the end of the year, you had anyway uh, big positions in Microsoft and Amazon and Apple. Yeah, there's a couple points there. Um, if you look at the way the fund is positioned today, in fact, the the largest sector weight that the fund now has is in consumer staples, um, and and uh, health healthcare is number three. And that's basically been driven by what we've seen in terms of a, the bottoms up opportunity. I mean, as we entered the year, we we kind of always try to speak in the way that kind of is is fundamentally consistent with how markets behave and how they they react. And for example, what I mean by that is you've got three components of risk, right? You've got market risk, you've got sector risk. And then you have stock specific or idiosyncratic risk. Last year was a year where you simply wanted to hedge or avoid market risk as much as possible. There was a lot of opportunity in taking very significant sector biases, namely energy, materials, other natural resources, stocks, um, to take advantage of the dichotomy uh, in terms of opportunity across various sectors. And idiosyncratic risk was was always important, but Played less of less of an input than than um, than sector influence. As we entered this year, um, given the kind of run up that we've had, and also the stability in terms of uh, raw material prices, namely energy and so forth, what we have seen is, um, as you saw this rotation into technology, in particular in the beginning part of the year, a lot of the uh, more defensive areas of the market particularly in consumer staples, were um, 
were hit hard. I mean, you had stocks like Clorox and Campbell's Soup down 10, 15% in a matter of a couple of weeks, basically, even though the underlying fundamentals of these companies were actually on a trend of uh, persistent improvement. So we used an opportunity earlier in the year to basically amplify uh, many of the positions that we had in, in staples and add to new ones. So the fund has a very distinctive I would say defensive tone toward it. Um, but one of the other things that we also did, as you point out with regard to big cap, big cap tech is, you know, it's very important to understand portfolio construction aside from stock selection. And given the fact that you had, you know, a very significant drawdown in technology shocks last year, we weren't oblivious to the fact that you could get some degree of rotational movement you know, back into those names. So we we basically reloaded um, into some of those big cap tech stocks in the very beginning of the year, the end of last year, did some tax loss selling at the end of last year to basically minimize the capital gain distribution out of the fund as well. So as you recall, back in heading into 2022, we owned big cap tech. And in fact, in 2020, we way overweighted big cap tech because we felt that was the area of resilience and opportunity. Um, and then coming into 2022, we hedged most of our exposure there. And then once we took the profits in our NASDAQ 100 puts that we had on in the beginning of the year, we simply reduced our position sizes in most of those companies. So as we ended the year and a lot of these stocks down 30, 35%, we basically used an opportunity to get at least a market weight in some of the big cap tech stocks. Um, and we've seen, you know, some of these stocks do tremendously well, whether it's Meta, NVIDIA and some of the others. But we've been using the last week or so, particularly last week, when you had this very significant rotation into these stocks on momentum, thinking again that they were the safety blanket in an environment where there's bank crises and potential recession um, to basically fade out of many of those names and, um, you know, amplify our positions in other areas. So again, we, we think this is going to be a year of idiosyncratic risk opportunities, less sector opportunities. But from a standpoint of um, big cap tech, I, th I think people are making the, the biggest mistake uh, in the sense that they're not appreciating the difference between today and 2020. And what I mean by that is that, you know, what we articulated back then was that if the FANG stocks, you know, were able to demonstrate earnings resilience during the, the very brief recession we had back then, we thought that those leadership stocks would get re-rated even higher and perhaps even to unprecedented valuation levels, given record low interest rates and the lack of growth elsewhere. However, when you look at where we are today, when you look at big cap tech, they're getting re-rated back to those levels. Unfortunately, when you look at the things that matter for these companies, profit margin uh, changes, Profit margin is that profit margins are actually decelerating now for most of these companies. Sales growth rates are actually decelerating, but you've got these companies back to almost peak valuations, and um, you obviously have a very different environment from an interest rate perspective. So I think the opportunity right now is to continue to fade big cap tech and and really take on more idiosyncratic opportunities uh, elsewhere. Uh, in, in other sectors, but do so purely on a bottoms-up perspective. Is there any opportunistic play, uh, whether it's the big money center banks or 
some of the big regionals that have been beaten up in the downdraft from the Silicon Valley Bank failure at, and, and the others as well. Uh, is that on your radar? It's on my radar, but the reality is if you look at where we are, just from a profitability standpoint, it's 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 impossible to see how these the banks are going to be able to um, make any money uh, from a standpoint of just looking at what the yield curve um, is doing. People forget that it's not just the level of interest rates that are important to banks. Um, what's more important is the spread. And the difference between, you know, what they pay on short-term deposits and what they're able to actually earn in terms of an investment portfolio. And if you look at where the spread, the five-year note versus the one-year note, it's sharply negative. Um, you know, the most the most accurate spread that you want to look at when looking at the banking sector and its correlation to net interest margins is the five-year treasury versus the Fed funds, Fed funds rate. And that's very, that's very sharply negative. Now, in some of the major banks, I mean, clearly you have this dichotomy now where the major money center banks, you know, are not paying anywhere near a market rate of interest simply because they're viewed as safe havens. I mean, if you go to JP Morgan and you try to open up a savings account, you're only going to be able to get, you know, 0.2% on your on your deposit. And frankly, uh, you know, JP Morgan can just deposit that money at the Federal Reserve on on um, on excess reserve and get a, a 4.9% rate of return. However, you know, we're still not sure whether or not this liquidity crisis that we're in somehow converts into a credit crisis. And uh, that's really where I think it's 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 to be seen. The, the problem with the money center banks is that's where a lot of the commercial real estate concentration is as well. So even though they they may not be as uh, incompetent in terms of understanding, you know, rate management, um, the the capability of them to you know, buttress against a credit cycle, which can turn against them. And let's not forget, if you look at credit spreads right now, they're incredibly tight, um, which doesn't really leave much room for further improvement. And if you start to see, you know, further erosion in credit quality, particularly in commercial real estate in the major cities, that's going to have an impact on the money centers as well. So, I mean, outside of kind of maybe trying to trade these things, which frankly, we don't really do all that well and really don't want to get distracted from um, trying to just play the headlines with the banks, um, the banks, you know, overall, you know, from a long-term perspective, are, are really a, not an, a sector that is that is rewarding to investors. In essence, what you get is at best kind of market a market beta of one on the upside, and then you get these cataclysmic events every ten years that uh, basically destroys a lot of shareholder wealth. According to Morningstar, it looks like you're overweight energy relative to the benchmark, and and you were last year, and that was obviously a source of outperformance. Um, if we are heading into an economic slowdown, whether that's a recession or not, or a rolling recession, what are your thoughts about the energy space moving forward? Well, right now, our energy exposure, it's about 14%, which is 10% lower than where it was uh, last year. And it is it is mainly concentrated in the majors, Exxon, um, Schlumberger, and the other area where we have really majority of the exposure at this point in time is in some of the 
pipeline stocks like Kinder Morgan, Williams, um, Oniok, actually. Those are areas that we think um, are, are, are secular opportunities that will continue to be profitable. Um, and this is this gets back to the whole, you know, it dovetails, I guess, with regard to the uh, point I was making about large cap tech. People are rotating into large cap tech thinking that it's a secular growth opportunity. What they're missing is that t- tech is, is cyclical. It's, it's no different than any other business, basically. Where we think the real secular opportunity continues to reside, you know, is in the fact that the last decade has seen, you know, capital malinvestment uh, into intangibles and not into real sustainable infrastructure, energy, and food. Uh, and pipelines really fit that bill quite quite nicely. So as a lot of these companies have sold off, in fact, uh, Kinder Morgan is a name that we owned a couple of years ago. Uh, we sold it. Now we just bought it back. Oniok is one that we just bought, bought back last week. Um, Williams, we continue to hold. We like it. Uh, but the other names that we have, you know, did very, very well with last year, like APA, EQT, some of the other names um, that are involved in, you know, very concentrated, you know, positions in the in the EMP space. We've actually took profits out of those names uh, at the end of the last year or the beginning of this year. Uh, and so we're emphasizing other areas within energy. I would say very high dividend paying, you know, six, six and a half percent in, in the, some of these cases like Oniok or, or Williams and, and, and Kinder Morgan. So we do continue to like energy because of the secular issues, uh, as well as now because they've sold off, it gives us outstanding entry points in terms of where we can buy these stocks, particularly from a yield perspective. Now, as a follow-up to that, uh, as somebody who's really involved with bottom-up um, research with all these individual companies, another theme that's out there is onshoring, nearshoring, and uh, with 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 relations with China straying. What are you seeing uh, with the individual, individual companies? Are you seeing this onshoring, near nearshoring actually happen? Is it starting to affect? cash flow profitability of of these publicly traded companies or not you know as an american i wish we were seeing it um the reality what we're seeing is actually more of a shift of manufacturing to um other mexico india in particular in the technology space and in in the software goods into further into vietnam um, we're not seeing yet the, the the big onshoring back to the United States. I mean, aside from kind of the headlines that you see with Intel and some of the others, um, and that's going to take many years to, to do, you know, I, we are still in this environment, you know, where it is very difficult to build uh, something from a greenfield perspective in the United States. And at the end of the day, despite the tensions, um, you know, China continues to be, you know, the 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 really the one country that can offer, you know, a manufacturing uh, capability at a cost level that continues to, you know, help profit margins stay relatively buoyant. And you know, profit margins are going to be the story of the year, right? Because this is a point that I've raised in some of the commentary and other interviews I've done in, in the media, and why this is not a year like 2009 where potentially we're off to the races. And what I mean by that is, 
when you saw the extensive cost cutting and restructuring activities back in 2009, and one of the reasons why we you know turned bullish in the early part of the year, despite the fact that the market was uh, you know at its nadir, was the fact that you were seeing companies undertake you know an extensive you know, wise contraction, as we called it, and whether it was uh, a company like Starbucks or somebody else, uh, off of a very low base of profitability um, that was going to lead to, you know, an extended and persistent period of profit margin and return on capital improvement. Today, unfortunately, the cost cutting and, and restructuring that we're seeing across the board is companies just trying to basically put their fingers in the dike um, in terms of trying to maintain what I would say are excessively high, you know, profit margins that they're just trying to protect from falling too far. And um, it's very rare that you get a bull market that's driven by profits where profit margins are, are two standard deviations on average for the, a company in the S&P 500, two standard deviations higher than where they normally are and rolling over. But the pace of the rollover has not yet accelerated simply because we haven't had a full-blown recession. But it doesn't really lead to a very strong profit environment um, that can you know, really support a, a big up year in the markets. So a um, couple of questions about some of the holdings. Uh, Boston Beer, Sam, they've, they've had a rough go since uh, the pandemic. I think they threw away millions of uh, dollars worth of product. They made made a lot more seltzer than, uh, than anyone could drink. At least they sold it all in 2020. Right. Stock, I think, peaked at six, seven hundred. So can you just comment on that one? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. To us, it's a turnaround story. Um, I mean, clearly, as you pointed out, you know, they had excess inventory on on the seltzer side, and that's been become a, almost a saturated uh, market. And you know, using just the uh, the paradigms of you know margins, you know, this is a company that was generating you know profit margins around eleven percent um, and and enjoying it, and they simply collapsed. Now. What we really like and what caught our attention was you finally have started to see a uh, an inflection in the things that really drive its stock. So you've seen profit margins actually go from you know negative to back up over four percent. You've got return on assets, which is actually inflected higher, and for the first time, you've got you know revenue on a on a per share basis on a year over year basis start to inflect higher. I think the other optionality that you have with um, with with Boston beer is, you know, the regional or statewide introduction of THC laced beers. I think that's going to be the next category, um, you know, as we slide towards, uh, you know, Gamora here across the country in, in every way, shape and form. But who am I, you know, as a libertarian to tell anybody what they want to do with their beer. But uh, I think THC beers are going to be uh you know, the next hot thing that we'll see that uh, Sam is actually the leader in terms of um, um, its R&D in, in, in uh, preparing for, uh, you know, big scale rollout of this. Yeah. And then and then another one I had just a, a, a curious about it. Uh, I noticed like Mercado Libre has been a big time pick of places like Motley Fool for years. And and obviously it was a great story. A great growth story uh, 
But I, I, I had read recently that the key to their the secret sauce now is they actually got some fiscal discipline and cut costs and are uh, dropping uh, positive EBITDA a billion or more, uh, something like that. I'm, I'm probably off on the numbers, but uh, interested in your in your thoughts there. Yeah, I, I, exactly. Now, the beauty about that is that that has happened as, you know, just to use a price to, to revenue multiple as an indicator of opportunity from a valuation perspective. I mean, the stock during its peak back in 2020 was trading at 25 times revenue. And uh, we've seen that with with basically a lot of the, uh, you know, particularly the non-U.S. Internet stocks really uh, get get trounced. I mean, this this reached a, a a bottom of a little less than four times revenue all at the same time when it's, um, you know, other competitors have come under problems. So it really was a combination of um, an opportunity. And this is a company that's been doing well over a long period of time, as you rightly point out. But it gave us a, a very attractive entry point when the stock actually met valuation criteria that we think are, are very important. And this is what I think, you know, going back to U.S. big cap tech, I think this is what people are missing is the um you know the asymmetrical opportunity that you see that we see there versus a name like Mercado Libre, which is uh, you know something that we much prefer to own in size as an active weight within the fund. Back to the the hedging part, um, we had asked you in the past, and I think I think it was early going into the pandemic, you uh, had switched your hedges from the S and P to the Nasdaq 100, and I think later on you were buying. Buying call options on gold, if I don't something to that effect. Um, so what which index are you actually uh, short? The s and p five hundred at this point in time, because we think the real risk, um because we've actually faded um most of those Nasdaq one hundred names within the portfolio to the extent where we're, you know, um, I would say now significantly underweight those, particularly after last week using the opportunity. To us, the broad risk or the systemic risk event is that this rolling recession that we've talked about, which um, will be shallow but of longer duration, somehow morphs due to some of demand shock into a genuine recession or earnings recession, which will lead to kind of a trap door environment, which you know is very consistent with what happened in July 2002 or October 2008. Um, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I don't think the Credit Suisse uh, takeover was, um, you know, the the end of the situation. So I think we're going to continue to have these corpses float up to the lake as monetary policy stays reasonably tight. Uh, credit issues start to become an issue. The question is, does it give us the give the potential for you know a full blown earnings recession where you know you get a twenty or thirty percent decline in earnings, um, that's we don't see that just yet, but it's going to be broad based and not just be um, subject to the Nasdaq one hundred type stocks. It's going to be across the board. So the S and P is the most appropriate hedging tool uh, from our perspective right now. Sounds good, Joe. Do you uh, have anything else you wanted to cover? No, I think this was a good, um, it, it, I mean, I'm, I like the positioning of the portfolio for all the reasons that James has said. And and as we've talked with internally, uh, 
there we look around it doesn't look like there's a catalyst in hardly any sector uh except maybe opportunistically for for some of the areas James was talking about and and you know we're probably in the camp too that we think that there's an earn, earnings uh uh recession coming and uh a lot of the fast money guy dummy type folks are talking about you know slapping 200 dollars uh, of earnings on the S&P and you get a 15 multiple in a recession, you're probably at 3,000. Now that's a extremely bearish view, but uh, but you're right. I think it's it's kind of weird that if we're having the Fed is still going to keep raising rates, uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, it would seem like uh, this whole notion of uh, soft landing, crash landing uh, has gone away uh, for, for the moment, but uh, still all the indicators when folks like Rosenberg are saying that we're really already there. So uh, do, you, do you have any view on soft landing, crash landing with the Fed? I mean, James, do you guys look at that very much from any macro view? Well, that's the thing. Um, if you were purely looking at top-down indicators, whether it's the yield curve or leading economic indicators, um, you, you, you it all strongly points to recession we're already in or basically on the on the horizon. That said, you know, when you, when we're looking here from a bottoms up perspective and then trying to create this mosaic that we can articulate, you know, a top down view from there, are, you know, are, are clearly some things that are pointing towards slowdown in terms of, you know, margins that are high and rolling over. Um you know, but on the positive side, you know, leverage ratios at the company level are not excessive. Uh, asset efficiency still is pretty good and utilization rates, you know, remain really high relative to other points in time. And, you know, you had periods where a lot of companies that we own and have looked at, they had their recession uh, or rolling recession during the pandemic. And then the supply chain constraints that basically followed so they've had you know problems and whether industrial companies or other areas so this is a, a, a you know you always want obviously the bottom-up information to kind of completely uh corroborate what you're seeing from a top down this is one of those times where you kind of you have to basically you know have some points where they're you're just unable to reconcile them so i think the problem with just kind of you know when you talk to economists who solely look at top-down information, you know, their their conviction levels of recession are is a hundred percent. But when you get to the when you look at the bottom up, it's it's not as crystal clear. And it's it looks more like, you know, a kind of, you know, as we've used this term in the past, like a stagflationary light type of environment. And, you know, we always go back to the basics, right? Just always think about it. And you, you use some numbers there about 200 on the earnings and 15 BE or what have you. You know, from our perspective, we always go back to the basics, right? What makes stocks go up or down? And we talked about at the outset, you know, what made stocks go down last year? It was that the PE multiple basically fell because interest rates went up um, and earnings were basically flat. When we look at this year, 
you know, the real risk might be in earnings actually declining uh, thus a bit, um, but there might be pockets. But even if you get profit margin deceleration, asset efficiency seems to be pretty good. But the thing with regard to it, with the PE multiple is what people are, are, are missing, I think, and just too much reliance on the Fed model is that um, the big variable that has equally equal impact in terms of PE multiples, people's risk appetites. And if we continue to get events like what we've seen in the regional banks here in the States, what we saw with Credit Suisse, that's going to all erode people's risk appetites. So you can get an environment where, you know, other interest rates turn positive, you get a pivot, but the PE multiple doesn't go up simply because people's risk appetites don't basically uh, follow and you get, in essence, a risk premium that can that moves higher, offsetting the benefit from low interest rates. So people have to, I think, always think about the market in, you know, this three dimensional kind of view, understand risk, understand rates, and then also understand the profit picture. And you can obviously dissect the profit picture into, you know, margins, sales growth and and asset efficiency and things like that. So it's uh, it's definitely going to be a challenging environment for everybody, which is why we've said, you know, when we head into this year, this is really an environment where if we can maximize our idiosyncratic or stock selection risk at the expense of sector or even market risk, I think that's the right attitude and posture to have as we navigate what's what's going to be a challenging 2023, I think, for everybody. Very well said. And I think we'll leave it at that for today. So thanks, James, for coming on the show again today. My pleasure. And thank you again for the continued support. If you'd like to learn more about James or the funds he manages, you can visit his website, centerfunds.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-E funds.com. Or feel free to reach out to us at wealthqb.com or follow us on social media. My raps are raw. I dribble like a basketball. Slobber on myself. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to click subscribe. Gordon Asset Management LLC is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit wealthqb.com. The information in this podcast is presented for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. Opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect those of Gordon Asset Management LLC, its producers, hosts, or guests. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risks. Neither Gordon Asset Management, LLC, nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast. Well done, but a wrap, so we're all...